Riverbank's Cow Care Podcast. G'day, I'm Sean. Nice to meet you. Welcome to the Cow Care Podcast, where we'll explore how to boost milk production and profit by talking to real farmers and experts. Today, we're going to be looking at your biggest asset, your land and the pastures on it. Many farmers we talked to found that good pastures lifted their milk production. Here's Aidan McKenzie. You do see the the milk production lift when they do hit certain paddocks. Um, And they're generally just them paddocks that that do water better and have got the better pastures in them. Um, And because they do have the better pasture and the better water, you graze them paddocks more often anyway because they just grow so much more feed. Um, any paddocks that grow poor, poor feed, um, they really don't want to be in there anyway. And production drops, so it's pretty much try and keep on top of the quality as much as you can. The paddock, which is by the creek, they always milk really, really well on the, on the paddock near the creek. And there is one paddock up the top of our farm on top of the hill that they milk really well off and the farmer that we bought it from said that that was his best paddock and they do milk very well off that paddock. It's to look at, it's not necessarily easy to tell. It has got a lot of clover in it. That's Sharon a lot there talking about her best paddocks. Getting the most out of your paddocks isn't just about getting the best growth rates. If you have the right information, you can use it to manage your feed in a much more efficient way. Dairy consultant James Haig and Annie Robinson, sale and operations manager at Riverbank Stock Feeds, had a discussion about managing pasture. Andy started by looking at how supplement feeds are strongly tied to your pasture. Well, grazing and supplement use is all about supply and demand. And you can't measure your supply and demand unless you know what you're growing. So you can't manage your supply and demand unless you know what you're growing. I guess what I'd like to see would be a lot uh, more use of um, you know, measuring pastures uh, properly, whether it be by plate meter, um, trailed seed X unit, um, pasture probe, that type of thing. It's, it's such an important job that just doesn't get done. Then rather than having a rotation that we stick to, whether it be an 18 day or a 30 day rotation, and we're just rotating paddocks because that's the next paddock they go to, we can start grazing paddocks because they're being grazed at the right time and at the right stage of growth to optimise production. Yeah, I guess a, a plate meter is a very useful tool to have on farm, especially where farm staff are involved, um, to understand what the wedge, the grazing wedge is going forward to be able to identify shortfalls that are coming up in the next two or three weeks. Um, it's really useful for doing that. Um, the seed axe trail meters uh, are used very effectively on farm because they're so easy to use. Just trail behind the bike and you've got a, an image of, of what you've got on farm at that point in time. Yeah, and if you're doing that every week, you then start to build some re- very real data that you can look back on and use for management decisions. Yeah, absolutely. And in analysis I've done in the past, uh, we found that the, the best paddocks are growing twice as much as the worst paddocks. So if the best paddocks are growing 15 tonnes of dry matter, then the worst paddocks are growing about seven, seven and a half tonne. Those worst paddocks could be pulled out and put into turnips or another crop that may yield 10 tonne 
or just or regrassed. Exactly right. I mean, more often than not, I go onto farm and ask the ask the farmer, you know, where are you putting the cows next? And they show me the paddock next door. Whereas the paddock that's five paddocks away is quite often the one that should be grazing next. And when I say why why are you going to that one? Because that's the one that always comes after the one that they're in now. So those decisions are not being made based on based on where the cows should be. And yet none of that costs any more money than they're already spending. Um, and this is the thing that we've got a, a big um, unutilised resource there within the grass on many, many farms. Really, we should be targeting, utilising 85% of the maximum that we can grow on that farm. While many farmers we talk to follow patterns of rotation, they were often based on visual inspections of which were the best growing paddocks. But there were other practicalities on the farm that didn't always see the optimal pasture being used. Here's Adam Richards talking about his pastures. I generally move them in the same, you know, to the same place, you know, same place each time. But um, you know, with some of our newer pastures that that grow more feed and more quickly, sometimes we might get back to them a bit quicker. So it's it's really just a matter of uh, feeling it out and um, our. Our back paddocks are a really long way from the dairy, so that's also managed a little bit differently. And um, you know they're taken out for for harvest, and um, in certain paddocks, which I might think uh, you know we'll have enough for one and a half to two days, depending on the time of the year. I might actually only put the cows in there for one day, just because it's a long way to go to get not much to eat. While Adam had better pastures, Matt Dare found that most of his grew at a similar rate, so he did more visual inspections to decide on his rotation. I base it purely on the residual of the grass. Um, we don't allow it to go below the certain point, um, roughly based on the three-leaf system uh, to a degree, but you can uh, get a maximum response if you don't graze it too hard. So. If the cows, if I check them after a few hours of being in a paddock, if they've eaten it down to what I want as far as the residual goes, then we either give them a larger strip or move them to a different paddock, a sacrifice paddock, so that there's no um, extra damage done to the pastures in any way. So, Most of the farmers we talked to were selective about the pastures they moved their cattle to, but if you're not taking measurements, you can still get some data that could be useful simply by tracking where you move your cattle. James Haig. So for those farmers that haven't got a plate meter or a CDAX meter, uh, we can keep track of grazing days. So, so if we record when we've grazed, let's say, paddock number five, um, if we're back within a fortnight um, and we're hitting those uh, grazing heights of 27, 2800, uh, we know that it's a fast growing paddock. But if it's a month before we're in there, we know the growth rates aren't quite as good in those. And it's a matter of looking back at um, soil analysis and fertiliser history on those paddocks and questioning why they're not growing quite as much. But also looking at, um, at soil testing, you know, often I go onto farm and ask, ask you when you last soil tested and I get told, oh, 10 years ago, well, how do you make decisions based around what fertilisers to put on? Well, I put on the same thing every year because that's what I've always done. You know, a nutrient budget is a really important tool um, and to do a proper nutrient buzz budget, we need to do a soil test each year. Yeah, on many farms that I go to, um, if you look at something as simple as calcium, uh, in a recent analysis I did, 54% of samples were deficient in calcium from a cow requirement point of view. 
So it's well worth looking at soil tests from not just from the point of growth, but also the nutritional value of the grass. Because at the end of the day, we're trying to grow grass to a specification, not just empty cells of dry matter. That's right. And when, and when we put rations together as a stock feed company, um, we're looking not only at the ration we're giving you that comes in the grain form, but we're also trying to look at what you're feeding your cows in the pasture form to work out that we're giving you a balanced diet and it becomes very, very hard if we don't know the information. We asked all the farmers we interviewed about soil testing. Sharon Allot and her husband made sure to soil test their farm when they first took over the property. Yes, when we first started, we got a, when we first took over the place, we had a soil test done and the paddocks were showing that, that uh, they said if every farm was as good as this, you know, it would be brilliant. We fertilise probably differently to everyone else in the district. We use um, a fish emulsion and a liquid nitrogen as well as liquid lime. Uh, most of that's got to do because we can apply that ourselves at the time when we need it. And also it means we don't have to wait for rain. Some farmers we talked to soil tested and worked in conjunction with farming consultants to get the best results. Uh, we soil test a year, twice a year. And does that affect the kind of fertiliser that you uh, use? Yes, it does. We, we run in conjunction with a farm consultant and he does all the soil testing for us and then gets back to us on what fertilisers we'll be using, yeah. While Noel Davies uses a farming consultant, Hayden McKenzie has worked with an agronomist and has paid attention to the history of his farm. No one was milking cows here for two years before we come here. So all three blocks were only used for uh, growing the heifers out, cutting a bit of hay and silage. Uh, the fertility was really down. So, um, yeah, we've worked with an agronomist and... We haven't actually tested the soils, uh, but yeah, sort of worked out what sort of fertiliser we need to be putting on and how much and that going off cow production, what feed's bought in, all that sort of stuff to work out how much we should be putting on to grow the feed that we need. And yeah, after 12 months, you can already see that we're growing a lot more grass than we were yeah, 12 months ago. Adam Richards hasn't done any soil testing on the farm he's renting, but he uses a family trick to get an idea of his soil health. I mean, back in Foster, we used to count count worms. You know, it's always a good indication of, of um, your soil fertility and health. And I remember last year I was working up a paddock and I don't even think there would have been a live bull ant in there, which, you know, which is a pretty good indication of uh, poor soil health. And, um, you know, with poor soil health, you, you know, there's not going to be a lot of minerals in there. And, and um, you know, and the place hasn't ever had lime on it. So, you know, there's probably some calcium issues there, which, you know, could, um, which could affect the cows with, you know, metabolic disorders. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're, when we're putting things in the feed to, to, to counter that, however, I think it would be better if they if they got that naturally. Some farmers found that the growth rates on their farm vary due to irrigation and seasonal changes. Yeah, definitely. Um, paddocks that water better seem to grow better. Um, anywhere that, any of the paddocks that stay a bit wet after irrigation, um, generally 
if you don't keep on them ones, you seem to grow a lot of weed and um, and grass quality. You lose a lot of quality in them areas. Um, yeah, and because the the farm sort of rolls a bit, like the contour of the land, um, different soil types in different parts of the farm makes a big difference to the quality of the grass that you grow. Um, they're all variable. Uh, some grow. Look, they all grow. They all grow reasonable. They probably all grow the same amount of feed, just at different times. The the wetter paddocks don't grow so well in the winter, I guess, and hang on a lot better in the summer. The the higher ground, which is lighter, um, was growing well during the winter time because it wasn't as wet, and um, but now has dried off a lot earlier, obviously. So, yeah. George Ocapinti on the effect of the seasons on his paddocks. But sometimes your cows just don't enjoy eating in certain paddocks. James Haig explains why. There are also lots of paddocks that the cows just physically don't like eating, and, um, and you can see those. They typically show themselves up as, as being slow to grow, low dramatic yield. And when you, when you investigate on those paddocks, it can be something as simple as they're, they're low in sodium. So you can do a nice, simple taste test where... If you get a little bit of stolon of clover, assuming you've got clover, um, if it tastes quite bitter like beans, the sodium level is quite low. But if it tastes nice and sweet, which is what the cows are after, after all, they like nice sugary sweet things, um, the sodium's good. So um, the cows have got to have grass which actually tastes nice and is easy to harvest. So, so if, if the sodium is low in the grass, it's as simple as applying 40 kilograms per hectare of salt yeah. to the pasture with your fertilizer to increase that sodium level absolutely just the same as if you're out having a meal and it didn't taste too good you put a bit of salt on just to sweeten it up again i think we've got to think about the cow is is quite a well-designed animal that she's got a big nose and a big tongue all designed around finding the nicest feed their sense of smell is 14 times greater than ours so they're designed to find sweet grass a lot of the pastures we go into these days, um, the lack of clover in there is really surprising. But then I, I speak to clients and ask them, you know, how, how are you putting your clover seed in? And, and they're putting it in at a drill in the autumn time. Now, if, to start with, white clover won't grow over the winter. It's a summer grass. So I recommend to people that they um, they spread it on at five to 10 kilos and they with their autumn fit and let the let the cows treat it in rather than putting it in a drill. Absolutely right. It's really disappointing to see see how little clover there is on farm when it's such a valuable crop. I mean, highly digestible and extremely high quality protein within there as well, um, and can contribute anywhere from so like 250 to even 600 kilos of N per hectare of of sequestered nitrogen out of the atmosphere. So it's a brilliant crop to have. Um, I think one of the problems with clover is that we do tend to um, abuse it in that way and then also uh, in the way that we manage pasture as it, as it gets too dry. Uh, overgrazing is, is certainly a big factor. I think as it ra gets too dry raises an interesting point too. I mean, the, the ryegrass plant, which is the basis of our whole grazing system, shuts down at 23 degrees. So you hit 23 degrees on any given day, that plant's shut down and finished and will not grow anymore. And there are a few of those here in Australia. 
just a couple. And I guess when I'm really surprised by the amount of people I tell that to, and they have no idea, absolutely none whatsoever. Yeah. And they say, oh, but it must grow tonight when the, when the temperature cools down. But the fact is, if it's 23 degrees and the plant's shut down, it's not photosynthesizing. It's not going to grow again until it cools down and it has the ability to do that. Yeah, it's, it's very important that we understand more about how grass grows. And I think it's fairly typical of a lot of livestock farmers is that, um, that uh, we, we're, we're not arably minded. I think we're looking at the pastures of 30 years ago um, where we had a lot of wild fescues and, and that type of thing, which did have the ability to grow at higher temperatures, you know, plantains. And, and, and it's interesting how we seem to be going back to, you know, a lot of farmers in the top 10% are sort of going back to that sort of pasture to, to optimise dry matter yields. A few farmers had some tips on how they've been maintaining their pasture. Matt Dare doesn't have irrigation and has a dry farm in the west. The biggest thing, I think, is in the soil preparation. We harrow religiously with the heavy metal harrows, which levels the ground, breaks it up, and keeps it nice and fine so you get maximum soil-to-seed contact. Um, and then when the drill goes in, because it's all level, the depth is right for the seed, everything works well. You also reduce the amount of slugs that you have because it sort of pulverises the top inch or so of soil. Um, so it reduces a lot of problems and maximises the, the efficiency of the drill and everything else that goes with it. Sharon allots farmers in Welsh Pool and found a good use for her effluent pool. The paddock that we've renovated this year is because it didn't grow very much at all. The paddock that we renovated last year is because it grew virtually nothing. So because the farm we bought, the effluent pond hadn't been emptied in 20 years, <laughs> we decided we'd empty that into this paddock the entire contents of it went onto the one paddock and we ripped it through before we um, seeded it. Uh, that paddock's done really very well. So we will use again stuff from the effluent pond to put on as well as other fertilisers. There's a lot of different ways of doing things, but what's the cost of getting it wrong? So you think that you're growing 12,000 kilograms of dry matter per hectare, when in fact you could only be growing 10,000 kilograms per hectare of dry matter. If you don't, if you're not measuring it, you don't know. And it's an average of um, 10 megajoules of energy per kilogram. That's a lot of energy that we think our cows are getting that they're actually missing out on. That's exactly right. And what you'll find when, when you go on farm is that a farmer thinks he's feeding 16 kilos of dry matter to his cows today. But on a quick back calculation, uh, it actually works out at 12. So either we're overestimating the ME or we're not grazing as much as we, we think we are. Yeah, look, I, I see that every day when I'm visiting farms. Um, you know, you, you're getting told that uh, the cows are getting a total of 22 kilograms of dry matter. But as you say on the back calculation, you work it out that if they're getting 22 kilograms of dry matter, they should be doing 35 litres and the cows are putting on weight. Where in fact, they're only doing 25 litres of milk and the cows are losing weight. Yeah, and you can see it in the residuals, the grazing residuals, that the cows are not clearing the paddocks out as well as they could do. So there's an overestimation of what the cows are being offered in the first place. And then there's also um, an overestimation of, of how much residual the cows are leaving. Uh, there's an awful lot of selective grazing goes on on farm. So the cows will just eat the bits of grass that they enjoy uh, the, the, the tastiest and the nicest. Uh, but they won't clear the paddocks out well enough. 
So getting a good understanding of, of what grazing covers are, what cows are going into, and what they're coming out at to, to uh, really understand the total amount of dry matter per hectare that's being offered to these cows. It's quite a simple calculation. Yeah, I guess we, we visited a farm recently um, and the cows, when we asked the, the farmer how much, you know, what cover the cows were going into, they estimated it at, um, well, I don't know was the answer and how much they're leaving behind was lots. Um, you know, if you ultimate pre-grazing level should be around 27 to 2800 kilograms of dry matter with a 1500 kilogram residual, this farm was actually leaving about 1800 residual. Um, and we estimated, just by doing a quick back, back calculation, that if this was happening all year round, they had the potential to earn another $1.25 million just by further utilising the pasture. That was on a herd of 750 cows. Thanks for listening today. Special thanks to Sharon Allot, George Ocapinti, Matthew Dare, Adam Richards, Hayden McKenzie and Noel Davies. You also heard from dairy consultant James Haig and Riverbank Stock Feed Sales and Operations Manager Andy Robinson. If you head along to cowcare.com.au, you can get all the other episodes of the Cowcare podcast and get a copy of the free Cowcare magazine if you don't have one already. While you're there, you can also see what Riverbank Stock Feeds can do to help boost your milk production and profit. This podcast was produced by Miles Martignoni. I'm Sean Britton. I'll see you next time.